All right, I want to invite everyone to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus 25. We've been walking through the book of Exodus and looking at God's liberation, how God wants to liberate us from all that would enslave us. And, um, and this week, we find ourselves in another important part of the book uh, where God is going to communicate uh, how to set up the tabernacle. I'm going to read our passage. The, the chapters 25 all the way to 40 are about the tabernacle in particular. We're not going to read all of that. Uh, we're going to spend the next few weeks unpacking the relevance for our lives. But this morning, I want to read just the first nine verses of chapter 25. Exodus 5, verses 1 to 9. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twin linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onk stones and stones for setting, for the ephod, and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. This is the word of God for the people of God. You know, when we read a passage like this, it begs the question, what relevance does this have for us today? When we read the Old Testament and the law, and especially God's commands to build a tabernacle, do we read it in such a way that we're going to construct this now? And the question is no. We're not going to build this kind of tabernacle now. So we may wonder, what, so what's the point? Why read it? What does it have for you and me today? And what I want to show you this week and then in the coming weeks how the tabernacle in particular and the theology of God's sanctuary in general have a very profound and important impact in who we are. And so this morning, we're going to take the broad view as we engage and enter into the particulars about how this can shape our identity. You know, philosophers and artists and theologians and a number of people who wrestle and think very deeply acknowledge that one of the central human questions, one of the fundamental questions of our existence is the question, who am I? Who am I? Who are you? Who are we? One author puts it this way, identity is the sum of everything that pertains to us and shapes us. Identity is that sense of being and self-understanding that frames our actions, communicates to others who we are, and sets the agenda of our acts. Identity drives us. It provides energy and motivation for all else. It is the well from which life is directed and sustained. As we enter in and engage the tabernacle and the larger story that it represents, I want to invite you to consider the well of God's truth and how it can energize you, sustain you, 
and shape you. So this morning, we're going to dive right in. Five ways, the tabernacle in particular, and God's sanctuary in general can shape our identity. The first, how the tabernacle shapes our identity. We are worshipers longing for God's presence. We are worshipers. You and me are spiritual beings. In verse 8, God illustrates why he's wanting them to construct this temple, this portable temple, this tabernacle. He says, and let them make me a sanctuary, a house for God, that I may dwell in their midst. The tabernacle was a place of worship, a place where God's presence could be experienced. Uh, Eugene Peterson, one author, defines worship this way. This is so good that the quote will be on the screen. He says, worship is the strategy by which we interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves and attend to the presence of God. Worship is the time and place that we assign for deliberate attentiveness to God. Not because he's confined to time and place, but because our self-importance is so insidiously relentless that if we don't deliberately interrupt ourselves regularly, we have no chance attending to him at all other times and in other places. Do you hear this? Worship is a strategy by which we interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves to attend to the presence of God. We don't feel God's presence and then respond in worship. We worship in order to experience and feel God's presence. God commands his people to build a tabernacle where they may experience his presence, a strategy of learning and experiencing who God is. At the center of our lives, the center of every person, is a longing for God's presence. We are spiritual beings. We are not merely physical machines to just live and work and eat and sleep and die. We are spiritual. We long for transcendence. We long for meaning and beauty and purpose. Every single one of us is spiritual. We desire beauty and meaning. And where we find it, that is what we worship. Ancient people understood this. It's why God's command to build a tabernacle and temple would not have been foreign for God's people. They would not have questioned this command. Ancient peoples, all ancient peoples, built temples and tabernacles at the center of their communities, a place where they could worship and experience the gods. And it's interesting, though, because all other people, every other country, every other culture, every other community of people at the center of their temple was an idol. And God here commands his people to build a tabernacle, not with an idol so they can just see God, but as a house where God's presence can be experienced. We look back at ancient peoples in our Western community, and we have a little bit, we snicker at that idea of idols and temples. We want to move past these dated ways of being. But the pursuit of beauty and meaning and transcendence 
has no less grip on our hearts today than it did for them then. That is why we construct a stadium that seats 100,000 people and show up to sing and applause and hear music and worship. It is why the power of a song or photograph or story can draw our hearts into something greater than ourselves. We are spiritual beings created to worship. At the center of that is a longing for God, a longing for His presence. The other day in our car as we were driving, um, because when we're in our car, we're typically driving somewhere. We just don't hang out in there. Our, uh, our youngest, Jack, Jack, asked the question. He just blurted it out. He said, where is God? It was one of those questions. It's actually fairly deep. Um, he just wanted to know where God was. And, and Ben and his older brother chimed in, God's in heaven. And then Bennett thought for a moment Dad, and said, Dad, when, when are we going to meet God? And, you know, there's a part of me that wanted to unpack the presence of God and, and talk about, well, you know, we can meet him in church, and that is true. And, but, you know, at the heart of that longing, when are we going to meet God? When Bennett thought about meeting God and when Jack was asking the question, where is God? They wanted to experience him, him in time and place. That is at the core of all of our longings, to know God, to meet him, to experience his goodness, his love, his presence. We are spiritual beings longing for the presence of God. A tabernacle shapes our identity. It reminds us that we are worshipers, but also we're reminded here in the tabernacle that we are sojourners, sojourners seeking God's eternal sanctuary. You and me, we long for home. The tabernacle was a portable sanctuary where God's presence could be experienced in the midst of wandering in the wilderness, in the desert. And it's really fascinating. Commentators will note that seven times, there's seven different portions in the command to build the tabernacle. It begins with the statement, The Lord said to Moses, God gives a command seven times, and then God's people are to create, to work. The seventh time where where it says, the Lord said to Moses, he reminds them to keep the Sabbath. Now, in what other part of the Bible does God give seven commands? Does God speak seven times culminating in the Sabbath? In Genesis 1, in creation. Right here, the author of Exodus is reminding us and informing God's people that the tabernacle is to be a new Eden. And this was expressed in some of the elements in the tabernacle. There was a golden lampstand, which was designed to reflect the tree of life. The Ark of Covenant was covered with two cherubim that protected God's presence, much like the Garden of Eden was protected by two cherubim. The Bible begins with the garden, a sanctuary where God's presence could be experienced. How does the Bible end? The Bible ends with a garden. Genesis 1 and 2, God builds a garden. Genesis, Revelation 21 and 22, God communicates the hope of a, of a future garden city. 
Let's look at this text in Revelation 21 and 22. There will be a lot of text, but I want us to engage it here and listen and think about the temple that God constructs for our future. Revelation 21, it begins by saying, And the holy city of Jerusalem is coming down. In verse 22, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And then continuing in verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. Lampstand. The nations will walk by its light. Then in Revelation 22, verse 1, Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, as as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there there be any curse. The Bible begins with a garden. The Bible ends with a garden. And we, like the people of Israel in the wilderness, live in the tension between those two homes. We experience the pains and struggles of life. All wounds, all feeling of despair and hopelessness is a reminder that in some way we're not home. Uh, The film Lord of the Rings, obviously based on the book by J.R. Tolkien, begins in the Shire. (laughs) And you have uh, Frodo Baggins and his friend Sam and the hobbits in the Shire where there was music and food and dancing and laughter and friendship. And then Gandalf shows up and, uh, and takes them away. Is that the wizard's name? Yes, thank you. Show, shows up and they're invited into a quest, a quest to protect the, the Shire, a, a quest to protect the rings, a quest to heal the world of sorts. But in their quest, are moments of pain, moments of death, moments of struggle. And what did Frodo and Sam do in those moments? They thought of the Shire. They longed for home. They talked to each other about it. They remembered the times when they were at peace. And they hoped that one day that time would happen again. And in the film, they do a beautiful job of, with the music In fact, it's called the Shire theme. It brings hope, longing for beauty, and to be home again. And the Shire theme, it it closes with this angelic child voice that sings this. It'll be on the screen. When the cold of winter comes, 
Starless nights will cover day. And the veiling of the sun, we will walk in bitter rain. But in dreams, I can hear your name. And in dreams, we will meet again. When the seas and mountains fall, and we come to end of days, in the dark I hear a call, calling me there. I will go there and back again. A reminder at the core of every single one of us is this longing for home a longing for permanent beauty, a longing for reunion with the people that we love. The tabernacle reminds us that we aren't fully home. All of us are sojourners, longing for God's permanent presence. The tabernacle shapes our identity. We are worshipers, we are sojourners, but also we are redeemed. We are redeemed by the blood of God's sacrifice. You and I are eternally loved and accepted through God's grace. God creates the Garden of Eden, and through sin, our presence with God is fractured. Something must be done in order for us to be reconciled back to God. And the tabernacle was a place where that could occur. Uh, Once a year, in God's people, in the Jewish calendar, there was Yom Kippur, which was the Day of Atonement. And on this day, the high priest, Aaron at the time when this was written, would take two young, perfect goats. One would be sacrificed, and its blood would be sprinkled in the central place of the tabernacle, in the most holy place is what it is called, where the Ark of the Covenant was. The high priest would take that blood and sprinkle it on the Ark. It would only enter into there one time a year on the Day of Atonement to sprinkle blood of the sacrifice to cover God's people. And they would, then they would let the other goat go, symbolizing freedom and forgiveness of sins. It was called the scapegoat. And the goat would leave and, and enter out of the gate of God's people. Into the wilderness. This represented God's covering, the sacrifice to atone, to cover for sin and forgiveness. That one goat would take that sin into the wilderness, that God would look on his people and see them as clean and forgiven and holy and blameless. And Jesus, in the Gospel of John, when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he declares, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why in the passage of Revelation that we just read, does it say over and over and over again at the center of the city is the the Lamb, the Lamb. Now think about that. God, the almighty, holy creator of the universe is described as a little lamb. This is good news because God, in his power, took on human form in his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, his blood shed to cover our sin so that we could be made right with God. The gospel is not good advice where God gives us the Ten Commandments and says, go, do, then you will be accepted. The gospel 
is good news. Good news of what God has done on our behalf to make us right with him. When we place our faith on Jesus Christ and his work and record, we are reunited with God. And each Sunday, we take a time for confession. And Jacob spoke about this earlier. The, the grace, the invitation to come before God, confessing our sins. But every time, every, every time we gather, we have a time of assurance, a reminder that we're not defined by our sin. We're defined by the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that is good news because each of us is longing for a covering. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, they covered themselves. They felt naked and, sh and shameful. And each of us are searching for a covering, searching for someone to come in and say, you are accepted, you are okay, you belong. And Christ is our covering, friends. The tabernacle reminds us that we are redeemed, redeemed through the shedding of God's Son. How does the tabernacle shape our identity? We also see that we are a family where God's love is embodied and experienced. You and I, we belong. We have a place of belonging. We're not just redeemed into a personal relationship with Jesus. We're redeemed and invited into God's family. Paul writes about this in Ephesians 2. Comparing the church to a temple. Listen to what he says. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles who were at one point separated and alienated from each other. He continues, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure See, a temple in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are a temple where God's presence and love is embodied and experienced. In our text, in Exodus 25, God commands his people, he says, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution contribution from every man whose heart moves him you shall receive the contribution for me in order for this temple to be built people had to contribute no one person had all the materials it required a joint team effort just like they needed one another to contribute in order for the temple to be built we need each other we need others in order for God's love and presence to be experienced Today. We are God's family, We're his temple where his presence and love can be experienced. And God invites you and me to contribute. All of us have a part to play. Now, many of us, when we hear this invitation to contribute, we don't feel that we have something to offer. Some of us wonder, you might be thinking, well, you know, Jay, yeah, you're a pastor. You do spiritual things. You can do something. And, and other people are elders and deacons, and some people might do some good things, but what can I bring? I don't necessarily have gold or some physical thing. I mean, what can I bring to contribute to craft a temple where God's presence can be experienced? It's, if, we're, if we're honest, it's an intimidating invitation. And I'm reminded of when I was a kid, and 
In my family, uh, my mom and dad wanted everyone to be a contributing member of the family. And so even when I was a little kid, I had chores. And, and at first, when you're younger, I think it changes when you get older. When you get older, chores are just a curse. But at first, I was excited. I wanted to contribute. And so I would get the, what do you spray on glass? Windex, yes, or whatever, cleaning material. And go into the bathroom. My mom would want me to clean the bathroom. And I would just spray that stuff everywhere. As if that's enough, you know, just spraying the Windex everywhere, and then I'd have a rag and maybe wipe here, wipe there, and my mom would go in, and, and she was kind, and we'd say, oh, thank you so much for your effort, and then she would go about cleaning the mess that I had made, because I left it worse than when I had got in there. And we feel this, we have this with our boys, too, our youngest Jack, who I referenced earlier, when we're making a meal, he just likes to contribute, he wants to serve, and we love that part of him. And so when we're making a meal, the kitchen's getting dirty, he'll push a chair in and get on it and stand up. And you know, there's a part of me that wants to just say, what? Jack, can you just get out of the way? Can you, you know, go play with toys? But I want him to contribute. I want to foster that in his heart. And so we give him something to stir something. And inevitably, almost every time, he'll make a mess. And we'll need to clean it up. But that desire to contribute. You see, we recognize, my mom recognized when I was young, Megan and I recognize now that we need to foster this right now, this desire to be contributing part of the family. You know, all of us are in different places in our spiritual journey. But all of us are invited to contribute. You don't need to wait till you're perfect. You don't need to wait till you're rich. You don't need to wait till you have all the questions answered and it all figured out because probably that day will never come. All of us are invited to humbly come and be a part of God's people and to contribute, some in great and very significant ways and some in very small and ordinary ways. So the question I have for you is this. Are you, do you view the church as a place where you are served or do you view the church as a place where you are served and you are invited to serve others? What contribution are you making in the body of Christ? We are a family where God's love can be embodied and experienced, and we all have a part to play in that work. The tabernacle shapes our identity. We are worshipers. We are sojourners. We are redeemed, we are part of God's family, and lastly, we are missionaries, extending God's loving presence to the world. You and I are created with a purpose. There is purpose for us. And this was always God's calling for humanity. When he created the Garden of Eden with his presence, he placed Adam as the first priest to tend to the sanctuary. But Adam wasn't to just care for the garden. What was he called to do? to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. Adam and Eve, they were entrusted with taking the garden to expanding its boundaries. God forms a people. He calls Abraham and forms the nation of Israel, and they are to be a light to the nations. This tabernacle was to be a place where they could experience God's presence, and they were to take it to the nations. There's a problem for Adam, a problem for the Israelites, and a problem for us today, and that is to think that God wants us to give us his blessing so that we can just enjoy it ourselves. No. God says to Abraham, I have blessed you that you may be a blessing to the nations. 
And Jesus shows up and forms the church and reestablishes God's design for his people, that we are to be a cross-cultural movement extending God's love and presence to all people. We don't merely enjoy the benefits of God's presence. We are called to extend the good news of his love. Because, and as we close, we are living in a world where people are longing. People are longing. Longing for transcendence and beauty, and meaning, longing for hope, and a future home, longing for redemption, longing for covering, and longing to belong. Fundamental to human existence is this longing, longing for beauty, longing for hope and a home, longing for forgiveness, and longing for a community where they can belong. And the gospel is the good news that all of those core longings are answered. And God has entrusted us with the joyous task of experiencing that goodness and taking that goodness to the world. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you enter into the imminence of life into our imminent frame, which is sometimes marked by pain and disappointment and even death. You enter into the imminence of pain with the transcendence of your beauty and healing goodness. Thank you, God. Thank you that our identity isn't just something we need to craft for by ourselves. Thank you that our identity is not just shaped by the pain and destruction of our world. Thank you that our identity can be shaped by the goodness of the gospel and your presence. Lord, may this good news shape our mind, shape our heart, and shape our actions. We pray this in the name of your Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.